I'll just explain why I chose Jonah today, because we're about to begin a series on mission. So what better way to begin to prepare for this than to hear about someone who was called to mission but didn't want to go? Many people have a problem about Jonah, um, but he he is mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25 as the son of Amittai and a prophet from Gath-Hefer. That's it. That's all that's ever said about him. But since this one verse tells us all, he's regarded in Jewish literature as a kind of mystery man. Thus, it's quite natural for stories to have been told around him. We also know from archaeological excavations that Nineveh was a great city of its day. Now, the book of Jonah is in the same category of writings as a story of the prodigal son. It's a midrash composed to expound in pictorial form a message which might have been lost had it been expressed in in abstract terms. Like, for instance, if you're trying to explain something, something you really want them to get it, you know, you actually maybe give a picture or a story or something, so it's retained in, in their hearts. We need to understand that this little story is an allegory about Israel, their disobedience and the consequences to come. And one of the tragedies of the world history is that Israel didn't take to heart this parable of Jonah. They had a second chance when God brought them out of exile, but they refused to enter into their heritage, refusing to be a light to the Gentiles for half a millennium. We too have a lot to learn about our mission in the world today. So let's begin by imagining the scene, just to set the scene. Storm raging. Water pulling the ship down. Wind blowing hard. The sides threatening to turn over. The wind howling through the rigging and terrified people on board. All except Jonah. He slept on while the sailors began calling to their gods. It begins with the Lord saying, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach to them. In other words, the Lord tells the prophet to go and do something very normal But what's unusual about this is that Jonah is called by God to go and speak to someone who isn't from Israel. This is is unusual because usually prophets, even if they're talking about other countries, are talking to Israel about those countries. But here Jonah is being sent to someone entirely different. It's also unusual for another reason, and that's because Jonah is sent to preach to Israel's enemies. And Jonah decides, to heck with it, I'm not going to do that. Does that shock you? When you think about it, we can assume that God's people always love to do things that he says, they're thrilled to obey him, and it's easy to obey when he calls. Well, it isn't always so, and many of us run away. We might not run away physically, but spiritually we do run away. We can't assume it was all so easy for them. The will of God can be, and in many cases is, extremely hard. And this was the case for Jonah. 
He didn't mind preaching. He was used to going around preaching and certainly telling the Israelites off if he was like any of the other prophets. But this would be on a colossal scale. Lots of kudos, let's face it. It's a massive city. But he wanted to choose his own pulpit. And that would certainly not be Nineveh. It would have been a devastating revelation for Jonah to realize that God wanted to give the Ninevites a chance to repent. But why did it bother Jonah so much? Pure and simple, he hated them. They were one of Israel's greatest enemies. They were cruel and fearsome, and given a chance, he would want God to kill them rather than bless them. Jonah, being a true blue and having tunnel vision, wasn't interested in the bigger picture of why God chose to give the Ninevites a second chance, a chance to repent and turn to him. You see, Jonah was hard-hearted, narrow-minded, extreme nationalist bigot of his day. And he typifies many people before and since. The author, who is unknown, is confronting a characteristic of the Israelite people who returned from exile and began rebuilding the land and its worship. They became narrow and exclusive and bigoted. They closed the gates, the borders, and their minds to anything they didn't consider pure. Sadly, many people who purport to be Christians do the same today. When Christians today live day by day without sharing God's love or in some way or other or his gospel message, it means that they see that what Jesus did had little consequence. Or they're making judgments about who deserves to be saved. Jonah, in his fear and hatred, could only see that if he preached to the Ninevites and they repented, God wouldn't wipe them out. And who in his right mind wouldn't want their enemies wiped out? After all, they might become strong enough to hurt or even destroy us. Is there a Jonah in you? Apart from feeling hatred, Jonah was jealous. Jealous of God's love and compassion to those who he considered were unworthy. Jonah was in fact worse because he knew that unless the Ninevites repented their evil ways, they were doomed to hell, and that's just where he wanted them to go. That's what they deserved. Why should he help God so that they could be forgiven? How many of us, I wonder, deep down, gain a sense of moral satisfaction from the thought that sinful people deserve judgment, when in reality we should be concentrating on their need for forgiveness. As Christians, we, we need to learn that we're not always called to understand, but to stand. It's interesting to note that in response to God's command, Jonah sets off. Oh, yes, he does go. But he sets off in the opposite direction, bound for Tarshish. Now, I can't figure out exactly what Jonah is thinking here. I don't know if he thinks that God's like um, cell phone service. You know, you go far enough, the signal drops out. Uh, very common in Suffolk, by the way, <laughs> I've found. Um, I think he has enough sense to know that wherever he goes, God is going to be there. But maybe he figures if he gets far enough away that he can make it inconvenient for God to use him. Maybe God will give up uh, his crazy plan if I go far enough away. I don't know what's on his mind, but what I do know is that Jonah struggles, um, 
what he struggles with is how many of us struggle with today as well. God asks us to do something and we really don't want to do it. And so we start scrambling for ways to get out of it. Excuses, things, reasons we can't. But Jonah would learn, as we must learn, that there is nowhere where God is not. Whilst in the ship, a fierce storm breaks out and the sailors are frantically trying to keep the vessel afloat, throwing everything overboard that they can. Where's Jonah? Jonah is fast asleep below deck, but for different reasons than Jesus was asleep in a boat during a storm. There's a contrast here between Mark 4:38. Jonah slept because of escapism. He was going further away from God and his call. Jesus slept through tiredness by doing God's work and the tranquility of knowing he's safe in the care of his father. Do you sleep well at night, trusting that your heavenly father is taking care of you? Taking care of your circumstances? And however long that's taking, that there'll be pieces being put in place that is only what cares about you and he wants the best for you. Though the captain's rebuke must have brought Jonah to his feet, come on, get up, what are you doing here, he said. There's no record of him calling to God in prayer at that time. How could he explain to the captain that he wasn't on speaking terms with his God? And notice the next point the writer is making. The sailors are represented as warm-hearted men who are appalled at the idea of having to throw Jonah into the raging sea though they had every reason to blame him for their situation. Also, they show that they are good and deeply religious people, even if they are outside the ranks of Israel. They are willing to call on on the true God if only someone will tell them about him. They ask Jonah, where is your God? Are we willing to share those of other faith, what our God means to us and what he can do in their lives and in ours. And it's wonderful when you think that God uses Jonah's disobedience to bring salvation to a shipload of pagan uh, sailors who would never otherwise have heard the true living God and heard about him and been able to respond to him. How often God uses our failures to bring about events to his glory, isn't it? Anyway, the Lord also saves Jonah's life in the famous story of the big fish. Now, this is the part of the story that a lot of people find the hardest to swallow as well. Excuse the pun. You know, they think that this is what makes it a fairy story. Well, I don't think so personally. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe the Red Sea parted. I believe that Daniel was preserved in the lion's den. And I believe that God can do this as well. God is powerful enough to provide whatever is necessary to save us. Even if the story is on a parable basis, God can do any of the recorded events. I believe that. Now Jonah prays to his God at last. He prays what he's in this fish. He cries out, out of the belly of hell, cried I. Now that can be some of our experiences in life, can't it? We can feel we are living through hell and all is lost. If that is you, remember Jonah. Trust that God is there 
And if you give yourself to his keeping, he will bring you through. And notice I said, bring you through. He doesn't necessarily take things away. If everybody, you know, was to live the wonderful life and became a Christian, then we'd all, they'd all, everybody out there would be doing it just to get an easy life, wouldn't they? Jonah still had lessons to learn in obedience and trust, just as we do. It may be days, it may be weeks, months, or even years, but if you are living in obedience, God will provide the best for you, despite what others do. One day, you'll be spewed up onto safe land to carry on. That's where we picked up the story, if effectively in the middle of a full-blown battle of wills between God and Jonah. God is persistent, and so the word of the Lord comes a second time to him to give the same instruction, doesn't changed, go to Nineveh. Now, he had his second chance, and unlike Israel who blew it, Jonah actually obeyed, maybe unwillingly, but he did obey this time. Jesus is your second chance today, a chance to start or continue a relationship with your creator God. So off he goes. Well, we're told that Jonah got on with the task of preaching as soon as he got to Nineveh. He wanted to get it over quickly, probably, and get out of it. Even though he would be terrified, and make no mistake, they were a fearsome nation. So you can imagine Jonah going through the streets, shouting to a cruel, sadistic enemy, only 40 days more and you will be destroyed. That took guts, didn't it? Let's face it. And astonishingly, there's an instant reaction. From the king down, they repent, fast, put on sackcloth, cry to God for mercy. It's a preacher's dream, isn't it? Even if half a dozen of you take this sermon to heart, I'll be delighted. But one word from Jonah, who doesn't even believe his own message, a whole city is down on its knees praying for forgiveness. Totally over the top, but then so is the rest of the story. You'd think that Jonah would be thrilled at his success. This is surely a preacher of the century. The shortest sermon, eight words, and everybody's down on their knees. Um, This might be a good moment to consider that Jonah didn't make any reference, by the way, to the need for repentance. He didn't give any message of hope to the enemy. So why did the king and all his subjects repent? Because the loving spirit of God was at work despite Jonah, we can share the message. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. So just be prepared to say those few words. Don't have to be eloquent. The Holy Spirit can work in people's lives. So when they repented en masse, Jonah's gutted because God relents and he saves a city. You see, there's nothing lovely about Jonah He's suffering from the very passion, which I talked about earlier, anger. And that had led the Ninevites, the same kind of passion of anger had led the Ninevites to become the cruelest people in the first place. You see, everyone's happy except Jonah. He enters into an argument again with God about forgiving the Ninevites. This shows his heart for what it really is, bitter and unforgiving. He couldn't cope with this mercy for sinners lark, especially if it's another race. Jonah's problem also was immaturity. He'd never grown up, and it's a trait that was totally inappropriate in a prophet. He was the kind of person who wanted his own way in everything. Oh, how we too can display immaturity in our walk with God. 
Yet, like Jonah, God gives us another chance. And let's look for a moment how anger actually arises in a personality. You see, anger is the result of a goal that we're pursuing that becomes blocked. So if you think about it, any time you're angry, it's because you want to do something and something or somebody is not allowing you to. Jonah became angry with God because he blocked his goal of seeing the people of Nineveh destroyed. If anger is not traced back to its goal, that it's being blocked and properly dealt with, it can find expression in self-pity and depression, even suicidal tendencies, which Jonah said, I want to die, I'd rather die than you save these people. So if you go OTT about something, go back and ask God to show you why you are like that about this particular incident or person. Chronic anger empties your spirit as soon as God fills it up. Anger burns a hole in your heart so that all the blessings leak out. What he said is, I'm angry because you're treating other people with the same grace as you do me and I don't like it. How many times do we say, oh, I don't like the way you're letting them have, why do these sort of people have everything and I end up with all these bills, I end up, I can't do this or I can't do that. You know, and those fester in our lives and in our hearts. The whole book sets us up for how absolutely inexcusable Jonah's attitude is at this point. And when Israel was reading this and when we read it, we've got to look at Jonah and say, where are we? in Jonah. Jonah rejoiced in being forgiven, but he wasn't willing to forgive. And some people carry around hatred like that. If some specific individual has hurt us deeply and we're not willing to forgive, or we hope that God doesn't bless them or change their life so that they're forgiven, we're like Jonah. There are all kinds of things that stay in our hearts and we struggle with. And since Jonah, a prophet of God, struggled with them, I confidently say that God's people struggle with them too. But you know, most of the things that we struggle with are a little more subtle than that, aren't they? Remember, one of the greatest barriers to prevent or to be released from depression is seeing yourself, uh, others, and the future from God's point of view. Jonah had projected onto God his own mean, parsimonious nature, and he became angry and petulant and wanted to die. We too need to be careful we don't do the same when God is at work in other people's lives. You see, God had other plans than Jonah coming, his life coming to an end. Sulking, he, Jonah went off to the east part of Nineveh and waits to see what's happened. I wonder why he sat there overlooking the sitting on the top of a hill overlooking the city. Perhaps he was hoping that they, he'd got to change his mind after all. Come on, God, make my day. Let me see that city destroyed. And I'm convinced if fire and brimstone had destroyed Nineveh, Jonah's self-pity would have lifted immediately because his goal would have been reached. Jonah now is acting out what they call a cat theology, Theology that has to do with God being nice to us because we're so important. But when things don't turn out right, you start getting angry at God and saying, hey, I'm not where I'm expected to be in life. Things aren't happening the way I want them right now. What's going on? God is shaking Jonah out of that and saying, Jonah, there are concerns bigger than you in the world around you. 
In these last few verses, Jonah appears such a pathetic creature, doesn't he? Despite having been given tremendous honour of representing God's gospel to a Gentile nation, he ends up peeved and petulant. The man who has been saved from certain death has been in and out of a fish's belly, seen a whole city turn to God, is feeling sorry for himself and asking to die. Sitting under a makeshift shelter he's made, looking over a city where he sees God's love go into action. A plant miraculously grows over its broad leaves to provide Jonah with shade and comfort. Physical relief at last. But no spiritual solace. Instead of a good shaking, God is teaching his spoilt child what his nature really is like. He might be calling you out of the shade today. He might be calling you out of your comfort zone. He might be calling you to serve somebody, to sacrifice for somebody who is different from you. There are all kinds of people out there, people we would like to ignore, people that if God said, I want you to go and serve them, we try to find a way of running from it. We would try to find some kind of way to make it difficult for God to use us. Who do you have a problem with? Is it city people? Is it people of other races? Is it people with another language? Gay people? Is it the really rich or the really poor? The prisoner? The prostitute? There are so many people that we would like to ignore, would rather stay comfortable, stay inside what we would like and what we would expect from God in our own lifestyle. And what Jonah is teaching us is that it isn't always an option. We talk, we sing, we pray about it's important it is to know God and his love and his forgiveness. We do it all the time. That's good. That pleases God. But at the same time that we are praying or praising or thanking God for the incredible mercy shown to us, we find it a nuisance to sacrifice our precious time or to do anything uncomfortable in order to share that love with other people. It's so inconvenient to serve others who need to be served, to bring compassion to people who need compassion. So we find excuses not to do it. That is Jonah. Jonah, we read, was very happy about the vine. He was grateful, but not changed. How sad that even in the presence of a miracle, Jonah is still peeved, self-pity, and sometimes gets such a hold that not even God can root it out. Jonah's physical and spiritual discomfort's not over, however. New day dawns, and he arranges for a worm to destroy that plant. So in a short time, he's really hot. The east wind's blowing across the plains, and Jonah feels faint and once again says, take my life away. How sad. In the fish, he pleaded to live. And now? It's so strange that Jonah's preaching brought success while he was such a failure. Clearly, God's ministry to him, physically and spiritually, had not been allowed to touch the core of his life. He's still the same Jonah as he was before. However, the other side of the coin is that there had been a healthy relationship with God. Jonah felt safe enough to be like that with God. And it's the same with children. 
if they say nasty things to you, they feel safe enough to say them. Not, I'm not condoning the fact that it's right to do that, but that's where safety is. Are you afraid to argue with God sometimes? I'm sure you have without realizing it when you said, why are you doing this? What's this all about? As long as you're doing it in the right frame of mind, not to say, well, I don't like what you're doing. Will you do something else instead? It's amazing to me that God permits us to debate with him. He has the power to um, consign us puny creatures to utter oblivion. He has the grace and patience to listen to our arguments, even debate with us. A God like that can have my heart any time. One writer, George Campbell, made a statement regarding this. And he said, not only is complaint tolerated by God, but it can even be the proper stance of a person who takes God seriously. In acknowledging them, we must also be prepared to admit that we're wrong, Ask God to forgive us and heal us and be willing to change our attitude, recognizing it's wrong to harbor grudges and grumbles and bitterness and hatred because it destroys us as well as our relationships with other people. Jonah, however, continues to argue um, about him causing the plant to wither, but he has no concern for the spiritual destiny of the people of Nineveh. Do we have concern for the feelings fleeting things of this life or for the eternal destiny of those who don't know God? Have you looked at Nineveh as Jonah did or the vine as the little worm did and wanted to turn tail and run? What has God called you to do? What letter must be written? What phone call made? What relationship mended? What person needs a word of comfort or acceptance? What action has God's voice been directing you to? For me, the reading's not so much about Nineveh, it's about Jonah in his lonely rage and reluctant discipleship. God has gone as far as he can go. He will seek to persuade, but he will never coerce. He will respect the right of a person to say no. Though the story is dramatically complete, the text breaks off abruptly. It closes with an unanswered question. The final chapter, it ends with God asking him, saying, Should I not be concerned about that great city with 120,000 people plus children, sheep and cattle? I wonder if Jonah ever answered that question. If so, I wonder what he said. We'll never know for his answer, if there indeed there was one, is not recorded. I would love to know if Jonah ended his quarrel with God, if he ministered to God's people in Nineveh, or he returned to Joppa and boarded another ship bound for Tarshish. Much more exciting place, by the way. Why does the author not tell us? I think it's the intention to leave the question hanging in the air. In order to leave us room to answer, provide our own answer and give our own response to it. Instead, let's show the same mercy we have received. God didn't set his seal upon us because we're nicer or cleverer or better natured than others, but because God needs us to be his servants in this world. The Christian is called to obedience to the voice of God and as he obeys the voice, that goodness, faith and holiness 
will come to him. Surrounding us is Nineveh, a world that has lost its way in the multitude of beliefs and none. We can share our faith here. We can share it out there somewhere. We can share it to the ends of the earth. It needs to start with one bite, just like the worm who God sent to eat the vine. Little worms don't usually tackle six-foot vines, by the way. But the word says God provided a worm. He especially prepared the little thing, for he never calls without equipping. Even a worm can do what God wants him to if he'll obey his maker. As God works in you and through you, he may be preparing you for a new, exciting, scary work in the future. Be ready to listen and obey. And you don't have to be always physically fit to respond to God and to be put in situations that are quite scary. In all situations, you can share what God is like. You can share God's love. And I know there are many people here who do just that. Our call is to be like Christ, who willingly gave up all that was due to him and took upon him the shape of a servant, became human and suffered willingly. He was even willing to face the cross in order to be God's person for the world. That is our God. That is our saviour. That is why we rejoice. And that is why the pattern we are called to follow. Are you ready to serve a God like that? Or like Jonah, never understanding how God can be driven by compassion for people like Nineveh.